Welcome back to the Gambone Law Podcast. My name is Alfonso Gambone, and like always, our podcast brings together many attorneys from many different areas to talk about areas outside of criminal defense. Sometimes we get into the area of criminal defense, but a lot of times I like to bring in guests to talk about areas in which I don't practice because it's helpful to both myself and my clients and their families to really understand the law and their rights under the law. Today, I am joined by Chris Casserly from the office of Greg LaMonica and Associates in Media, Pennsylvania. Chris's office is based in Media, Pennsylvania, but they have a practice throughout Pennsylvania and New Jersey, focusing in on the area of family law. Today, I wanted to talk to Chris about a little bit about domestic violence as it relates to divorce situations, property settlements, child custody, child support, and also from another standpoint in an area that our law firm sometimes gets involved with in Pennsylvania, the PFA proceedings, protection from abuse, and in New Jersey, temporary restraining orders and final restraining orders in New Jersey. So Chris, welcome. Thanks, Al. Thanks for having me. It's good to be with you. Good. Chris, if you could give our listeners and our viewers a little bit about yourself and your background and how you came to practice family law. Sure thing, yeah. Um, so I've been practicing family law for about 10 years. Um, it's my sole focus, and um, that's all that we do at La Monica Law is family law-related issues. Um, that can be a pretty broad category when you talk about some things that intersect with criminal law or estates law, but we really take pride in honing our practice in on just issues experienced by clients that fall under that label of, of family law. Uh, certainly that would include protections from abuse, which is the Pennsylvania equivalent of a restraining order, um, but it also deals with custody, support, um, the equitable distribution of assets and debts subject to a marriage, a wide array of issues that stem from either having a child with somebody um, or being married to somebody or otherwise having some property in common. So at La Monica Law, we focus primarily in southeastern Pennsylvania. So I would say the uh, majority of our cases are Delaware County, Chester County, Montgomery County, Philadelphia, and Bucks. Um, and then in the right instances, we will travel to further reaching parts of Pennsylvania. I was in Carbon County last week for a custody hearing. So where it makes sense, we will take that ride out, uh, as well as over the bridge. We handle cases that are in parts of southern New Jersey. And again, it's wherever it makes the most sense for us to get involved. Uh, in cases where that doesn't make sense, we'll find an able attorney who's located more locally to that county and, and make sure that they're in good hands through the relationships we have at La Monica. So Chris, I want to talk a little bit about domestic violence. First, I want to talk to, about, talk to you about it from the standpoint of divorce, property settlement, child, child custody, and child support. Now, I know that's a lot, so I just, just said a whole lot in a few amount of words, but can you kind of tell us how a domestic violence situation influences, if at all, the divorce situation like let's start with property settlement so let's start a property um the the thing to keep in mind as we go through all of this is um if family law is like a circus then the three rings of that circus are child support equitable distribution of the assets and custody right and whatever happens in either of those 
three rings, it's going to have an impact on the entire um, proceeding generally, right? It's all under that same tent. So even where you have seemingly unrelated issues, right, whether or not domestic violence occurred and the division of assets, there are going to be things that tie one to the other and will impact the trajectory of a case depending on whether domestic violence is um, found to have occurred or not. With regard to uh, the distribution of assets in a marriage, and more specifically the marital home, if one party to a divorce action is excluded from the marital home by a PFA or by a restraining order, it will certainly prejudice their ability to retain that house as part of the divorce, right? Everybody wants to keep the marital home. That's where your kids grew up. You have a lot of good memories. If you get an order put in place that excludes you from that house for a set amount of time, or like we'll talk about in a little bit, you know, a, a permanent one, three years time, that's going to make it a lot harder for you to wrangle that house from the divorce uh, and, and maintain your claim to it, to the bricks itself. You'd still be able to receive cash in consideration of your share, but as to the actual house, uh, having a finding of abuse uh, that gives rise to a, a protection from abuse, that's going to make it really difficult for you to keep that house in your column as you proceed through equitable distribution. Okay. Now, from a from from a child support, child custody issue, I would think that if there's an allegation of domestic violence, and we'll get into PFA and restraining orders just in just a minute, but let's assume for a second that there is a PFA in place, or in the case of New Jersey, they've gone through the process and there is a final restraining order. So a judge has already found that the soon to be ex-spouse or um well soon to be ex-spouse um has a has a has a legitimate claim they found that in a civil proceeding and now the order's in place so how does that affect child custody number one because i mean the finding in those proceedings and correct me if i'm wrong um the allegation is there usually it's involving spouse on spouse. Um, in my in my understanding, that's the order protects that moving spouse who is the petitioner um, from any type of contact, whether it be direct or indirect. So how does that affect the the situation of child custody when obviously they have kids together and these people are going to be you know have to co-parent now? Yeah. Well, in Pennsylvania, you can get a you can get a protective order put in place for yourself, um, or you can petition for a protective order to be in place on behalf of a minor, right? Like we talk about the children. So let's talk first about setting the children aside. If you have a protective order between you and your ex that does not include the children, that still will carry an impact in custody and in your divorce generally. One major way is communication. So under a PFA, once a protective order is put into place, you know, you really can't have any communication with the moving party unless there's some carve outs in whatever order gets into place. So sometimes you'll see that the parties may communicate in writing to the to the extent that it has to do with the children's scheduling, health or, or otherwise. Um, but apart from that, like the default setting is that you can't so much as butt dial this person. And that can make it very difficult to talk about, you know, who's going to get the house or who's going to pick up health insurance for this next year. A lot of things that need to be worked through. Um, 
now by attorneys because the two parties themselves can't correspond with one another or call one another um, or what have you. So it will definitely make things a little bit more complicated not being able to just speak with the party on the other side of a divorce or custody action. Um, where the children are named as protected parties, that's going to prejudice you a lot more. Uh, if you have a finding of a court saying that you have um, intentionally or, or otherwise caused harm to your children, you're going to have an uphill battle that you'll need to overcome in custody. Now, that's not to say that all is lost. It's not to say that you know, you're not going to spend meaningful time with your kids going forward, but you are going to have to work through that protective order that was put into place um, protecting your children, or if the children are left off of it, you know, protecting your spouse. Now, I would think that if there's been a finding that the soon-to-be ex-spouse presents a threat to the other spouse and or the kids, it's going to affect support. So now it's my understanding that support in Pennsylvania and maybe even New Jersey is based on guidelines. Am, am I correct on that? You are. And um, support would maybe be the arena of family law least impacted by a protective order. Okay. Um, they don't really concern themselves with the why of it, right? So if you don't have any custodial time of your children because of a PFA, uh, judge or magistrate in support is not really going to get into the, the why of, of why you don't have contact with them. They're really just looking at, okay, what is the week-to-week -week schedule? What are we dealing with here? But um, I'm, I'm sorry to cut you off there, but I just ha had to get this one in. So if there's a finding of, of abuse and, and, the, and the support settlement agreement calls for some parenting time but it's supervised parenting time and the 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 non-custodial parent we'll just call them uh, just a parent who has the just visitation rights uh it's kind of like an 80 20 split um is that how the magistrate or the master would would decide in terms of um, in terms of the amount so in pennsylvania there's new laws that went into effect January 1st of 2022. Um, and basically under those laws, you calculate support either based on having partial physical custody of the children, whether that's every other weekend or something more restrictive that would include some kind of supervision or whether you have shared physical or 50-50 custody, okay? So it's either you have 50% custody, something close to that, or you don't. And so if you don't have that, then whether it's 20% of the time, 30% of the time, the guidelines are going to yield the same figures. All right, and that's why I say that a, a protective order restricting your access to the kids, that won't necessarily drive what the numbers are gonna spit out. All that means is that you don't have shared physical custody, you don't have 50-50 custody, and the guidelines under the 2022 update don't really concern themselves with whether it's 10% of time, 20%, 30% of time with the kids. Okay, now moving on in terms of domestic violence and the PFA proceedings and the restraining order proceedings in New Jersey, the evidentiary standard, is it the same in Pennsylvania and New Jersey and the burden in both states, is it always on the petitioner to show that this uh, respondent or the defendant, if you will, um, presents a threat of immediate physical violence? 
Yeah, the, the standard of proof in Pennsylvania for a protection from abuse is preponderance of the evidence. And that's one of the lowest um, standard of evidence that we use in Pennsylvania. That's like if you picture the, um, the statue holding the scales, which side weighs more? That's your preponderance of evidence standard. All right. Now, in Pennsylvania, there's two levels to getting a Pennsylvania protection from abuse order. The first one is, is a, a hearing where the other side is not present. And the moving party who's saying, I need a protective order, goes in front of a judge. It is of record. There is a recording of it. But they're going to be faced with a very low evidentiary standard because the other side isn't there to present their version of it. And in those instances, um, typically a judge will order a temporary protective order that's going to be in place for seven to ten days until you can get in and assert your defense to that. Now, you might wait a little bit longer if there's pending criminal charges. We'll get into that. But that's how it's set up to be so that if you go in, you obtain that initial order, you're not going to really be faced with a ton of scrutiny. You're not going to get cross-examined, for instance. But when you go in for that full hearing and the other side is present, the court is looking to which side has more credibility, which side weighs more. All right. And so as the moving party, you do have a duty to present you know what your allegations are and then what evidence that you have in support of those allegations uh, but for instance if you're saying that the police responded and they took my husband away in handcuffs but the police reports don't bear that out if you can get those police reports into evidence at the full hearing it's going to refute a big part of their case and if it's a toss-up you know it's not like criminal court where it needs to be beyond any reasonable doubt this happened or didn't in PFA core, it's a lot more of which side has more credibility and presented more evidence in support of their claim. So I like to think that the standard, the evidentiary standard, the preponderance standard is similar to the criminal world at a preliminary hearing where there's that, where they're trying to establish probable cause that a crime was committed uh, to establish whether or not a matter should be held for trial. It sounds like it's pretty similar, correct? That would be accurate, yeah. Right. And then in terms of, in terms of, I guess, these proceedings, they're not criminal proceedings, as you mentioned. So the defendant in these proceedings doesn't have a Fifth Amendment right, but you mentioned pending criminal charges. So in a situation where there's pending criminal charges or likely criminal charges, just based on the allegations, they haven't come down yet, but you perhaps maybe have a conversation with the assigned ADA in Pennsylvania or the assigned assistant prosecutor in New Jersey, and you know it's coming. How do you advise a client in those situations? Who's, who's the defendant? I'm sorry. Right. That, that, those are tough when you have a defendant who um, is being alleged to have committed some criminal act, and they're really eager to defend against that, especially to do so in, in PFA court where um, you know, they, they have a little bit more of an ability to present evidence in their defense. Um, but it's it's really nearsighted to to go ahead and jump the gun and do that. The reason is you you alluded to the Fifth Amendment. You never want to put a client on the stand subject to cross examination and have them say anything that could then over in the criminal component of their case be used against them. So a lot of times when we have an incident that gives rise both to a protection from abuse and also the potential for criminal charges, you know, we're, we would be telling a client in that situation that you need to stand pat, you need to follow the advice of an able criminal law attorney who will be able to address these criminal charges and with those out of the way, 
you're free to take the stand in, in your defense. But until then, you really want to put the criminal charges at the front of your mind and focus on uh, defending against those before you go into a PFA courtroom and take the stand. So hypothetically speaking, if a defendant in a PFA proceeding were to say, ignore your advice and say, no, I'm taking the stand, I want to do this, and you advise against it, but they want to do it anyway. So they get up there and they say what they say, they're cross-examined, and they, they admit to likely incriminating evidence. The prosecutor in both New Jersey and the ADA, Assistant District Attorney in Pennsylvania, could then take that testimony and just read it in the evidence, right? That's right. I mean, that's prior sworn testimony comes in, in evidence. Right. So if you're saying that you were in fact at this place where the conduct is alleged to have occurred, um, that's, you put your hand on a Bible and testified to that, your criminal defense attorney is not going to be, it's going to be very difficult for them to try and introduce into the record evidence that would say that you were elsewhere on that given day. So your, your criminal defense attorney is going to have a difficult time um, contradicting your prior testimony, essentially, if um, you've said something on the stand in the protection from abuse hearing that hurts your case in the criminal defense attorney hearing. Well, Chris, this has been very helpful. I want to get your opinion on one last matter. It's kind of outside the family law world. Um, it involves um, allegations, Deshaun Watson. Um, it's my understanding actually today, I found out a few minutes ago that he's actually settled 20 of those 24 lawsuits that were settled today. So let's pretend for a second that that didn't happen today because he kind of he kind of beat me to the punch there. But but if you were advising him right now and he he comes to you and says, well, Chris, what should I do in this situation? So he you know, there there's the possible discipline, well, the likely discipline from the NFL as to something's going to happen. And he just signs this guaranteed two hundred thirty million dollar contract. I know that this year he's just being paid a million dollars. I'm sure that any settlement agreement, if the, if the attorney knows half of what he's doing, I'm sure Tony Busby does, is going to tap into that contract somehow. Um, what are you telling him to do? Are you going to tell him to? Now, obviously, we haven't reviewed any discovery. We don't really know anything. But uh, just based on the, the sheer amount, 24 lawsuits, I think it's actually 26 now, what would you tell him to do? Yeah, I saw ESPN reporting this morning that um, it was like 22 or, or 20 of the um, claimants have reached a settlement. And yet, I mean, that would be my advice to the client in that situation, that um, the natural urge for a lot of people who, you know, are defending against that is to get their story out, to, you know, make sure that their side of it is told. Uh, but that's not always the smartest thing to do. And if you can achieve an outcome that doesn't prejudice your future in such a way where you're not going on record making any statements, um, that's going to be your clearest avenue to putting it behind you. Now, um, that can be difficult. I mean, you just saw what happened with the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard trial. You'll get clients saying, well, this isn't true, and I want to go out there and put testimony down that's going to rebut this. Um, but as I see that trial, the, the Depp Heard trial, there were no winners in that. You know, the jury did find one party was on the hook to the other. 
but they both came out of it not looking great. So from a public or PR perspective, if you're advising Deshaun Watson, it's, you, you know, you want to focus the headlines on the contract you just signed with Cleveland or the outlook for your team next year. And to the extent you can uh, find resolution with these other things that don't have to do with football, you, you certainly want to do that, especially given the deal they gave him. He has the money to settle it, and that's going to that's going to be a smarter use of it than continuing to litigate these things, both in, in the court of law and in public opinion. Yeah, I mean, my opinion on it was you have to settle them because of the sheer amount. I think it was just two alleged victims. To me, you, you quote unquote, go to the mattresses and you go to trial. And my response to the NFL, if I was representing if, if I was representing him, on that end, too, was he hasn't made any missions. Uh, the grand jury hasn't indicted him. And I would get into the fact with their own lawyers that the, the burden of proof for the grand jury, like what we just spoke about, is more of a preponderance standard. So and they're right that a grand jury would indict a ham sandwich. Uh, so you know, because of the lack of admission, because of the lack of indictment, you can't take any action against the guy because he hasn't done anything and you're basically suspending the guy because of allegations and to me maybe you could share your opinion on this if they were to discipline him just based on no settlements no criminal indictment just based on the allegations to me you're setting a, a bad precedent and you're actually setting the players up for possible future extortion because you could have a situation where you know, people are sophisticated. You get a group of women or men and you say, listen, we're going to go to this guy and say, listen, we're going to make these claims. You're going to get suspended for a year, lose your $50 million year contract if you don't pass. And the NFL, because they did it in that case, would likely do it again. So to me, that's the reason why you have to, I mean, you know, that would be, that'd be my response. But I think if it was only one or two, I'm going to trial. But if it's 24, I mean, you can't try 24 cases. Yeah, I mean, the, and that's such a hot issue between the players' union and the owners. You know, at what point can an organization take action against somebody who is essentially an employee, right? And I think that both sides don't want a bright line rule on that. It's more of a case-by-case -case situation. Now, when you have 26 accusers coming forward with, you know, not identical, but similar um accounts of what happened to them it's kind of a where there's smoke there's fire issue um so as if i'm the players union i don't want that to be my example of when it's appropriate for the league to step in and and or the organization and take action um but yeah if i'm if i'm representing if he's my client deshaun and the browns or the nflpa take abuse you know allegations seriously and take action against him for that i do think that you may have a cause of action to try and force that issue and say none of this has been proven you know they like to use the player conduct policy and other soft line um, manuals rule books to impose discipline where they think they need to and then overlook it where they don't because there's been lots of instances like you referenced al where you have people coming forward one or two accounts um, that don't grab headlines in the same way and don't result in uh in adverse action against the team or the player but with deshaun it's a little bit different and uh a little bit surprising that the browns and the league haven't taken any action against him well i mean to me if i was if i was running that organization i would i mean regardless of how good of a player he is 
I just wouldn't want it. I, I, I just think it, it's, I mean, he may, I mean, it may work out eventually for them, but I think it was just way too much baggage to, to, to just sign on. And, and, and I think when you guarantee that kind of money, you're just asking for a lot of backlash. What I didn't like, though, was what I saw on mostly ESPN was, you know, a lot of the reporters were, well, you know, why can't they just take action against the guy? And I'm thinking, well, you know, there's no real, I mean, from a legal standpoint, there's no corroboration. And I understand that in most sexual assault type cases or sexual um, cases, whatever, whatever you have, there is no, I mean, it, it is a he said, she said. But again, there's only consequences where there's an admission of some sort. What I didn't like was, to me, they had to wait. The, the NFL, I think, you know, maybe even pressured his, his own legal team to say, look, you guys have to settle this. Otherwise, you know, we're going to maybe even hit you even harder if you don't if, if you don't do something. Because I think the NFL was feeling pressure from possibly something like the Me Too movement to do, to do something. Um, and but the problem was, I think that they had to just wait because otherwise it's just a, it's a bad situation. But uh, Chris, this has been great. I want to thank you. If people want to find you and your law firm, how can they do that? Why don't you give us your uh, website, also your contact information, if you could, and um, you know that way people can contact you and you know hopefully get them the help that they need in this area. Like I said before, this is an area that our law firm practices in, but there's been a lot of crossover between clients that I've handled and clients that I've sent to your law firm because I know that we don't do this. So if you could, please give your, your contact information to the viewers. Yeah, so the, our website is www.lamonicalaw.com. We have somebody available through our chat host feature to speak with a client regardless of what time of day it is. So if you're up in the middle of the night, not sure where to turn over an issue having to do with family law, we have a, a team that's ready to respond to you and get you on the calendar with one of our attorneys that very next day, all right? So definitely the website. Our social media is very active. Facebook, you find us at LaMonica Law. Uh, Instagram, LaMonica Law. Um, Greg LaMonica, the firm president, is very active on, on LinkedIn, on Facebook, on his personal page, on his Brutally Honest page as well. Um, so those are going to be resources available to potential clients, both through our website and also our social media platforms. Uh, we pride ourselves on our responsiveness. So if somebody is reaching out and they need, really need to speak with an attorney, whether it's like Father's Day, like we just had this last weekend, or just off hours otherwise, we will have somebody that will be able to connect with you and make sure that you're on Monday's calendar to, to develop a plan to attack these things proactively. So, um, Al, it's always a pleasure being on here. I look forward to doing this again with you. And uh, wherever the family law issues bleed over into, into more criminal components uh, or the potential for same even, Al, you, you know, you're our number one guy to uh, make sure people are in the right hands and we can craft a plan forward together uh, and make sure that everybody's on the same page throughout. Well, Chris, thank, thank you again, and I'll see you soon.